You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, where we talk with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson, and right now, it's likely you have an email in your inbox or in your junk folder that contains a malicious link. In my RSA 2020 keynote, I shared how a simple email wreaked havoc on two organizations. Today, we want to take a deeper dive into the social engineering, the non-technical strategies that cyber attackers use to manipulate targets through human interaction, often tricking them into breaking standard security practice, and how this has become a large starting point for a lot of cyber attacks. With me is Rachel Toback. She's an entrepreneur. She's a self-described white hat hacker, and she's an InfoSec expert. Rachel is the CEO of Social Proof Security in San Francisco, and in her role, she advises enterprises and agencies like PayPal and the U.S. Air Force on how to harden their defenses against social engineering. She is a three-time runner-up winner of DEF CON Social Engineering Capture the Flag Hacking Competition, which is held in front of a live audience of hundreds in Vegas. There's a lot of pressure, Rachel. <laughs> yes, there is. <laughs> but thank you for joining me today. Yes, I'm so excited to be talking with you, Anne. I read that you studied neuroscience, and you've also studied improv. Can you talk to me a little bit why that relationship is so important to social engineering component of cyber attacks and how that has become a major security priority for organizations? Yes, absolutely. Um, I have found that improv and my knowledge of behavioral psychology and neuroscience has helped me immensely as I got started in social engineering because I didn't go to school for social engineering. I didn't even go to school for computer security or anything like that. So for me to be able to take the knowledge that I have about how to build rapport within seconds, how mirror neurons work in neuroscience, how we mimic each other and make each other laugh is so essential for me to be able to build rapport when I'm hacking. Um, and I used to perform improv on Friday and Sunday nights. And it really is fascinating how performing improv on stage is so similar to doing a vishing phone attack. Um, in improv, you have to be able to do things like turning on a dime. Let's say your scene partner says that you're in an ice cream parlor and this whole time you thought you were in a spaceship. Well, too bad. Now you're in an ice cream parlor and you need to figure out how that's going to be true. Um, and you still have goals, you know, like you want to build a relationship with the other people that you are on stage with, or you know that you need to build in another scene partner, or you might have a special phrase that the audience shouted out earlier, and it's your job to somehow work that into the imp improv scene, um, but you can't crowbar it in. And it's, it's amazing that human beings act the same, whether it's improv, neuroscience, behavioral psychology, or hacking, people are savvy. They can tell when you're being disingenuous. And just like in improv and when you're performing comedy, you really just have to go with the flow. And same with social engineering, you have to take your time to hit that goal. Maybe you're trying to get them to hit on a malicious link, or maybe you want them to download something or give out a piece of sensitive information like a password or account number or grant me access to an account. I have to take my time with that just as I would in an improv scene. I can't force it. Um, and I can't fake it. And I think something else that's really interesting about social engineering and improv is people can tell a lot of the times when things are 
off, right? Like a lot of times we hear in social engineering, you know, if, if something feels off, um, then you just want to report that. And I think that that is challenging for people to hear because a lot of times, yes, they can tell when things are off and those are going to be your lazy attackers. The ones that are just going to spray attacks and hope that you click on something or hope you give out information. But if you can do it like improv, people can't tell that you're acting. They can't tell that you're faking it. Um, and saying things like, if it feels fishy, it probably is, or if it feels off, just report it is great for lazy attackers, but for a persistent attacker who has a background in understanding how to get you to commit to, uh, being consistent to something that you said previously or build rapport with you, they're going to be able to get access to your data network or money. And it likely isn't going to feel off. And that's why I focus on making sure that companies can understand how genuine attacker requests can sound and help them do things like build secure authentication protocols into their flows and have technical controls to back the person up because sometimes it's just not possible to tell what's off. So that's really fascinating. I think there's so much of human psychology that actually is wrapped around cybersecurity. And I, I think it's an underappreciated aspect of it. Tell, talk to me a little bit, if you can, about the, you know, you said the lazy attacker, right, that's just trying to, you know, do some type of spray and maybe they'll get one victim um, and it's, it's a good return on investment for them. And that the, the savvy person can typically tell or the person that's been exposed to that type of stuff can tell. But talk to me a little about the methods of the more sophisticated attacker. What are the types of things they're doing that, that are so deceptive to, to human nature, right? And that we're not cynical or skeptical about it. They're managing to get past our defenses. How are they doing it? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, you've probably heard of lazy attackers. Like they just send you an email pretending to be from a really poorly spoofed email address, like your CEO, right? And they're like, I need gift cards. I have this client coming in. That's the lazy attacker move. We're going to see that sprayed everywhere. Now, the real targeted attacks, those spear phishing or spear vishing attacks, those are things like You've probably heard of business email compromise before. Um, those styles of attacks where we're conducting OSINT, open source intelligence, to learn about their people, their vendors, their processes, to try and gain access to the funds, data, or info. And this can take anywhere from 10 to even 100 hours, depending on how locked down the company is. And I will spend hours and hours and hours combing Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Indeed, Glassdoor, anything that I can use to try and create an airtight pretext. And that's who I am pretending to be based on that OSINT. So here's an example of like a real committed attack. Um, I'm not saying that I did this, but this is the type of thing that I would do. This is a type of attack that we see when people are really trying hard. They're not lazy. So um, I'm going to go on Instagram and let's say I find your office manager, Ashley, on LinkedIn. I go on her Instagram and I see that it's public and she tags the taco truck. We'll just call it Taco-licious for the purposes of this. Not might, might be a real company, but I don't know. Um, and let's say that Ashley posts, oh my gosh, we love using Taco-licious for our end of the quarter celebrations. Thank you so much. You have the best service, best tacos, best guac, whatever, right? And then I might see that and look up Taco-licious. And now I see that Robert is the person who works in accounting probably the guy that's sending out the invoice requests. I am going to spoof an email, something that seems plausible, like Robert at tacoliciousinc.com, for instance. I might make the subject line invoice overdue, send that overdue invoice to Ashley with a request for payment for the event. And she might just send that to accounts payable. And I might just get my money and disappear. 
those types of attacks are very, uh, they're increasing. We're seeing them. They are also very uh, useful. They tend to work well for attackers, uh, which is unfortunate for our companies. And working in the redundant processes to make sure that as things work up the chain, like to accounting, accounts payable, we can verify that those requests are legitimate is really important. That's one of the things that I spend a lot of my time on right now. That's, that's um, amazing. I have to tell you, I had an experience. So in um, before Microsoft, I had a startup um, and the CFO received a request, an email that looked like it came from me to transfer money and all of the bank account information. So, you know, this attack, it's, it's mm-hmm. very common. And it wasn't until he forwarded the email to me and I legitimately received the email that I said, whoa, stop. Because he said, okay, you want this sent, right? And, you know, he's a pretty sophisticated uh, technology person, right? But they just looked like a legitimate email for me that I, we need to pay a vendor and to send it to this bank account. Yes. And those things are so common. In fact, that actually just happened to Barbara Corcoran. Um, you might have seen that she posted on her Twitter that she was a victim of a spear phishing attack. And they got away with, I think, $380,000 just by pretending to be her assistant um, that was requesting a funds transfer for one of her real estate investments that happens to be public. And so an attacker found that information. They requested that wire transfer. Um, The uh, quote-unquote assistant sent it to the accounts payable folks that she works with. And they didn't take that extra step to say real quick, let's make sure that this is legitimate. Let's use two methods of communication to confirm and boom, transferred out almost $400,000. And Barbara has been very brave in saying that this happened with her and her company because a lot of people don't admit it, but she really used it to say, Hey, you need to be really careful when you do your Y transfers because this just happened to me. That, that's uh, I did see it on social media and it was fascinating because you, you think that some people, Oh, you're so tech savvy. That could never happen to you, but you know what? It can happen to anyone. The, just those social security calls that people get, right? Yeah. My, my partner was almost a victim of that, but he finally hung up and called me and said, yes, but they said they're going to arrest me. And I said, you don't owe anything to um, to the IRS. It was actually the IRS call. I said, you don't owe anything to the IRS. So why you said, well, what if I do? I said, they're not going to come arrest you in two hours if you don't transfer money from your bank account. <laughs> yeah. But he was, but they put the fear. They used that human you know, psychology, that aspect of fear. Yeah, and they, they use that method of, of urgency. Um, something that we know is, uh, if you've ever read Robert Cialdini's book, Influence, he talks about the six principles of persuasion. And one of the big ones is urgency. We create a time box around our requests. And if we can do that, it makes it more likely that you're going to comply with a request because people turn off a lot of the skills that they have when they have to think through, okay, is this legitimate? When they say, I need this in 30 seconds. Like something that I do when I'm hacking is I'll play the sound of an airplane taking off in the background on YouTube. And as I'm talking to that person, you hear that sound. And I'm like, hey, I need this right now. I'm so sorry. We're about to take off. I have 30 seconds. Can you help me? And if I can, if I can really tailor that attack for that person and play that sound in the background, it just makes it way more likely that they're going to reply and they're going to do the thing that I asked them to do because they have that sense of urgency. That, that's amazing. The, um, the other thing is, I, I wonder where you draw the line, right? So, you know, all of us, you're on social media, I'm on social media. So let's just say that someone uses things they learn about me on social media and, and, and launches an attack successfully against my employer and ends up, you know, with data, right? Corporate sensitive data. Where do employers draw the line and what responsibility do they have versus me having this public presence? I mean, do you have a point of view on that? Because it's always been 
fascinating to me of and, and is the person accountable at all? And in today's society, it's not. But I just wonder if there has to be anything around that that we start to be concerned about either from a, pol- a company policy or a public policy standpoint. Yeah, this is a really, really hard one. I think my viewpoint might be a little bit controversial, so this is exciting. Um, I think that human beings are going to use the tools that are given to them, like social media. And I don't think it's necessarily against the rules to say, you know, I participated in Halloween. um, Let's say I participated in this Halloween parade and my company won first place with this Halloween parade. I'm so excited and post that on Instagram. But you know what I can do with that is I can, I can turn that around and say, and spearfish that person at their email address and say, Hey, I am a Halloween parade organizer. Come collect your prize for your company. Now, is it wrong that that person posted on Instagram? Hey, we just won the corporate Halloween parade. No. I don't think it is. And so I do think that it is on the employer to make sure that their employees are trained, but not only that, they have to have the technical controls to back that person up because human beings are naturally fallible. We will never get the click rate to 0%. And that shouldn't be the goal. The goal should be to increase the report rate and to have technical controls that fail less so that we can protect people. And so things like having two-factor for those accounts. You know, if I fish that, spearfish that person and I tell them that, you know, here's a calendar invite link for a Google Hangouts to get your name on the trophy and that link takes them to a credential harvesting site and I get access to their Gmail, but the company doesn't have two-factor for their specific Gmail, that's on the company. Now we have to make sure those people understand and are trained. We have to have the you know, things like two-factor and password managers so that we don't do credential stuffing attacks, but it is on the company to make sure that the employee has those tools and has that training. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's where it goes, is make sure the employees has the tools and the training, but at the end of the day, they can't restrict, you know, it's really hard to restrict somebody's social media activity. It's not hard to restrict when you say don't publish, you know, company confidential information, but right. restricting other things becomes incredibly difficult, right? It, so. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, somebody posting that they won the Halloween parade contest, I wouldn't say that that lands in the sensitive information category, right? And so things like posting a picture of a badge, posting a picture of your workstation, those are things that a company can say, hey, we have a social media policy and it's really important that you follow it. It's really tough to enforce it, but hopefully they can some folks on the security team do um, some automated tasks to look through some tags and hashtags and posts and geolocation tagging. And that can hopefully get them a good sense of what is our information data leakage in terms of badge photos, for instance, um, and help do some education there. But you're not going to get that to zero. You're just not. Someone's going to be excited on the first day and they're going to post that. And unfortunately, pictures online sometimes are forever. Um, And so it really is all about making sure you have those technical controls to protect. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, So Kevin Mitnick had some interesting predictions for 2020, and I wanted to get your point of view. Sure. Um, He feels that we're going to see um, a lot more deep fakes that hijack, say, a CEO's voice and try to get activities happening, or maybe even things that will get published in the market to drive down a company's stock price um, with the CEO's voice. Also, really AI-driven social engineering attacks and things that manipulate, you know, IoT products potentially to create chaos, right, and to sow disinformation. What do you think about those attack vectors? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the things like hijacking a CEO's voice, 
that one's interesting to me. I think we're really close. I think we're probably about maybe a year or two away from that being very easy. We can do it now. Um, we can create those deep fake audio sources, for example, now, but folks who work at MIT do that right now. We don't see the average skipped, uh, script kitty able to manipulate a CEO's voice, but we do have things like voice changers. Um, I use them in my CNN Dhoni attacks. You, you might've seen those. Um, and those are pretty useful. They work pretty well. Um, if you ha are good at accents or you can make yourself sound like that person, you could probably fool somebody if you're spoofing their phone number and convince them that you really are them. Um, and that's an issue. The things that I am very concerned about that keep me up at night are things like deep fakes and misinformation campaigns. Those are the things that we are seeing with, that they're definitely increasing. And I think the big issue here is that when, pe when we have deep fakes and we have disinformation campaigns, it makes it so that somebody has plausible deniability, even if they really did do something. Like they could say, I didn't actually do that. That was a deep fake. When in reality, they might've actually done that action or they, they might've really said that. And I think the ability to create and sow that disinformation and create chaos is very concerning to me. Um, and it's really essential that we can create technology that can suss out the truth and do that quickly so that we can't, launch an entire disinformation campaign on Twitter with a deep fake video or have somebody say, I didn't really do that. We need the technology to, to be able to say, this has an authentic signature, this is legitimate, um, or, or somehow analyze and see that that thing was indeed really said. And that's really concerning to me. It is, because if you remember, um, and it still happens today, but it was more prevalent probably two or three years ago, where somebody, somebody would get something offensive posted on their Twitter account and they would say, Oh no, my account was hacked. It wasn't me. That was the, always the, the excuse. Right? Right. Um, right. So I wonder, do we need some type of electronic signature that validates videos in the public sphere? Right. If it's a, you know, a government official or a company official, do we have to actually have a chain of custody for videos so that, so that we can have, they have no plausible deliability. Yeah. I think we're going to see that technology become much more prevalent. Um, and that is something that I'm really excited about and, and really researching. Um, but for me, yeah, I think we're, I think we're a couple years off. And so we're going to have a couple of pretty wild years here and we really need to stay vigilant and we have to verify that things are accurate before we say tweet about them. Um, and nobody's perfect. So we're going to see issues arise, but hopefully we can find a way to build technology that protects us. So, you know, at Microsoft, I'm always thinking about a lot of different things, right, about security even at the chip because of, you know, the business we're in, software we developed, IoT devices, et cetera. What scenario do you think plays out, and I'm talking about purely a social engineering scenario that ultimately leverage tech, but that potentially could compromise an electric grid or something, a city government, right, via a social engineering attack? What type of scenarios have you thought about? Yeah, these are scary. I work with clients who, who work on these types of devices and machines and systems. So thinking about these things a lot. So let's say things like energy grids, it's important for them to understand the threat model from state actors. Of course, that's something on their radar. Um, but I think they don't always realize exactly what it sounds like. So something like I mentioned before, where if it sounds fishy, it probably is. And yes, it probably is. But things that don't sound fishy might be as well. And so we have to be politely paranoid. Um, that's a little phrase that I like to use, it means basically you don't need to be mean, but you have to use two methods of communication to confirm that things are authentic before moving forward with a request for sensitive data um, or for a sensitive action. And so if I'm pretexting, pretending to be an internal team member, how are you going to make sure that, that I am legitimate? Um, are you going to 
message that person on a different channel? Are you going to call them back to avoid spoofing? Really thinking through those protocols so that there are systems and redundancies in place um, to protect you so that you don't have to suss out, does this person sound legitimate? And awkwardly say something like, are you who I think you are? Or email somebody, hey, did you just call me? Because all of that's awkward. We beings, we don't like awkward scenarios. So find a way to, to place it on the protocol and make sure that we can think that way. In terms of things like autonomous vehicle technology, I think as that becomes more ubiquitous, users are going to be less accustomed to social engineering attacks because the types of folks who are using autonomous vehicle technology now are probably pretty savvy. It's, it's still kind of nascent, um, but I am terrified for the future attacks that could arise, like posing as a service worker for Tesla, sending out malicious USB sticks to get them to plug into a Tesla, exploit vulnerabilities in autonomous vehicle tech, leading to a loss of steering control, for example. That type of thing terrifies me. Um, I think we do have a few years to be able to, to get under that uh, and, and educate folks and make sure that um, people understand the vulnerabilities with those types of situations. But those are still things that I, that really do concern me. So have you seen um, anybody demonstrate that type of attack? I haven't seen it in a while, but have you seen anyone demonstrate a successful attack, particularly one that targets automobiles? I have not actually worked on automobile technology, but I know that there is uh, DEF CON hacking. I think there's vehicle hacking village or car, I think they call it car hacking village at DEF CON. And that is something that I want to check out next year after I do social engineering village and voting village. Um, I have to check that out. I'm not sure if they do malicious USB stick style attacks. My guess is probably yes, um, but I can't wait to see that next year if, if that is the case. So that brings me to my, one of my last questions for you. How did you come to hack a voting machine? It's, it's kind of legendary. So talk to me about how, that, how you came to do that. What, what brought you there? Yeah, so uh, I was just wandering around DEF CON um, a few years ago, and I think it was two years ago, and I happened upon Voting Village actually right as it was closing on that Sunday at DEF CON at the World's Largest Hacker Conference, and um, they, were, they were kind of cleaning up, and I walked over to Matt Blaze's team um, and Hari Hersey's team who were working in there, and I said, can you show me everything about this while you're cleaning up? Like, I don't want to make your life obnoxious, but I need to see how this happens. Um, and they walked me through how to hack that voting machine, the one that was used in 18 different states. Um, and it was terrifying, to be honest. I, I had no idea that that type of attack was possible. Um, I work in social engineering, so obviously I'm very interested in things like in, on-site attacks, in-person attacking, and how you can manipulate a machine to do something it's not supposed to do. So after doing that, I, I started really reading everything that Matt Blaze has ever written, understanding how risk-limiting audits are essential, making sure that we don't confuse people, that it is very important to vote, but we also have to make sure we have paper, paper backups um, and, and really kind of going out and telling the world about what I found. Um, I w I'm not an election security expert by any means. I wouldn't say that I know as much as Matt Blaze. There's just no way. He's truly legendary, um, but really reading what he's taught us and, and bringing that back to the people is so exciting to me. That's fascinating. I, I think it's impressive that you did that. I've, I've heard, and you can validate this, um, in your bio somewhere someone said you're not a coder, but you just expertly know how to use social engineering to get through systems. And actually, that's that's a whole different type of um, hacking, right, than somebody who can you know write a line of code that's malicious and insert it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you'll hear people say sometimes 
you know, social engineering isn't hacking, but social engineering is how the majority of cyber attacks start. So even if you don't agree that social engineering and human manipulation is an element of hacking, you have to really acknowledge that the majority of those exploits that you're building with are being launched with social engineering. So I'm the one that gets somebody to run your malicious code. I'm the person that gets somebody to plug in the USB stick or go to the malicious URL or download something. So definitely a part of that system, though many people do argue that it's not actually hacking. I personally think it is. Yeah, we've talked about a lot of ground and we, we've probably you know scared folks along the way a little bit. So I'm curious about if you had advice for both an individual who's trying to protect themselves out there from like those IRS phone calls and also from an organization, what, what steps would you recommend people take? Yes, definitely. I love this question. So the most important thing that you can do, the thing that's going to hit just your everyday human being going about life is password reuse problems. And so having a password manager and if you are an employer or a manager, having password managers for your employees and teaching them how to use it is so essential. Making sure that they keep their software patched is also super important because that's how I'm building my attacks, right? If you're using an outdated operating system, for example, then I have a way into your machine. Um, the other thing that's so important is to use two-factor and not just two-factor that's technical. You know, things like Duo security or a YubiKey are really essential for making sure that you can keep yourself safe. but I'm also referring to what I like to call real-world two-factor. If somebody calls you out of the blue and says that they have this really dire request and they're on, the, they're on a plane and they just need your help right now, right? That is really trying to get you to do something quick. Um, and it's important that you use a second method of communication, even if it's chatting the person and saying, quick question about what you just asked me or emailing them um, or doing anything that you can to use a second method of communication, not on that same channel or thread that they have originally reached out to you on, can really protect your organization. We know super big organizations like Facebook and Google have been in the news before because somebody was able to request a wire transfer um, and they lost hundreds of millions of dollars. And it can happen to any type of organization, no matter how robust their security might be. And so you really do have to use two methods of communication to confirm people are who they say they are. And you got to use your technical controls to keep yourself safe. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to I'm going to add on there a little bit as we wrap. Um, you know, we always talk about and I say it all the time, you know, multi-factor authentication all of your employees, all of your time, you know, 100% of your employees, 100% of the time. But the other thing is I give consumer advice, you know, family, right? Because as you know, when you're in this business, you become the tech support for your family. <laughs> yes. And I always tell them, look, if the bank calls you, the bank isn't going to call you. So hang up and call back the number that's printed on the back of your credit card or the number that's on the legitimate bank website that you look up, not the URL they gave you, right? right. It's simple stuff like that that'll help you from being a victim that people just don't don't think about every day. But don't ever, you know, don't ever give data on the inbound call. Say, I need to call you back and don't call back the number they gave you. Call back the number that you legitimately have from doing business. Yeah. And I try to be practical with that guidance so that people understand it. Yeah, it's so, so, so important. The other thing is I try and work with organizations to help them understand that if they use those types of loops to contact their customers or clients, that they're setting their clients up for dangerous scenarios. They're teaching them to accept this as normal. Like I had a pharmacy call me once and say, hey, quick call or real quick to make sure that we're confirming your medication. Um, just want to make sure this is Rachel. Okay, great. Give me your address just to confirm it's on file. Can you give me your social security number? And I'm like, 
absolutely not. Are you kidding me? Now, it did turn out that that was a legitimate call, but that is concerning to me because now the folks that use that pharmacy are going to get used to that and they're going to think it's normal and it's not normal. So helping those, those organizations create more secure processes for their clients to teach them the right way to communicate with them is really important too. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's been really enlightening to hear from you. I'm glad we finally got the schedule because I know we were trying for the first season. So I'm glad you were able to make the time. So excited to talk with you, Anne, and I will hopefully see you at the next conference. This episode is really fascinating to me because we're giving pragmatic guidance, not just to organizations, but also to consumers, to individuals who are concerned about cyber attacks in their day-to-day life and all different scams that you see, whether it be phishing scams or phone calls, et cetera. And so I think one of the key takeaways that I'm taking from this episode with Rachel is that we not just talked about the problem and that what we're seeing in society and some of the risks and concerns, but we were actually able to land some really good guidance for folks to protect themselves and protect their organizations. And if there's anything I want to achieve with this entire series of podcasts, it's to help people and educate them and help them be more secure in their day-to-day lives, but also in their organizations. I want to thank our audience for listening in and uh, join us next time. We're going to have a lot more coming up on Afternoon Cyber Tea. Thank you. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.